بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله الذي من علينا بنعمة الإسلام الحمد لك يا الله يا نور السماوات والأرض يا قيم السماوات والأرض يا ملك السماوات والأرض لك الحمد يا علي عظيم وسبحانك سبحانك أنت الهادي وأنت المعين ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على المصطفى الأمين خاتم النبيين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين الله سبحانه وتعالى says in his revelation القرآن الحكيم ثم جعلناك على شريعة من الأمر فاتبعها ولا تتبع أهواء الذين لا يعلمون إنهم لن يغنوا عنك شيئا لن يغنوا عنك من الله شيئا وإن الظالمين بعضهم أولياء بعض والله ولي المتقين هذا بصائر للناس وهدى ورحمة لقوم يقنون We have given you a sharia We have given you a pass A guidance a guidance like a map and Allah says in God's book so follow it if you believe in God and you believe in a God that doesn't simply create and forget but a God that creates and cares then it is logical it is logical and natural to think of what that God decrees and would require of what God created. So follow it and do not follow the whims of those who do not know. If you are a true believer, you will know that your confidence, your reliance, your strength 
comes from God. If you anchor yourself in a relationship with the divine, you will feel the divine. And the divine will guide you. No one else, no one else can help you, help guide you on earth. Everything else is like mirrors and shadows that engage you in a variety of ways and distract you in a variety of ways, but they are not an anchor. But Allah tells us a principle that resounds throughout not just history, but throughout our ethical being. The way that we should learn to think and analyze and understand in the unjust the unjust are backed up and supported by those who are unjust like them The unjust are an extension of the unjust. The nature of injustice is like an infection. It starts small, it starts even often so marginal that it escapes notice but it grows and extends and injustice when supported results in further injustice This single principle tells us so much. Anyone that ever has had children knows, and even when we were young, when we were teenagers, that it is rare, if not, in fact, practically impossible. For someone to go astray by themselves, the vast majority of times when people go astray, they have found a community that helps them go astray. How do people go down the path of drugs? How do people go down the path of drinking, how do people go down the path of atheism, 
How do people go down the path of any of the major sins? They find friends who give them a community that gives them the type of leverage that allows them to overcome their innate, innate and intuitive sense of consciousness about right and wrong. The unjust are supported by the unjust. It is not just a theological principle. It is a sociological principle. That is why it is impossible for injustice to exist without a population of human beings that enable and strengthen this injustice in a variety of ways. Injustice cannot exist without enablers. Enabling injustice is done sometimes in very explicit ways. Like when you are in fact a co-conspirator in a crime where there is a meeting of the minds and an agreement to commit a crime. But we, before we even reach the point of criminality, injustice has to be enabled, strengthened, empowered. The sense of shame has to be removed. Put differently, injustice, like evil, is an evolution. It is rarely a revolution. People evolve into it. And they evolve into it through a dynamic of enablers and empowerers those who empower it. So that a human being overcomes in most times their innate God-given reservations about what they intuitively know is proper and right and just and get to the point of philosophizing and justifying not just the commission of injustice but the persistence of injustice. This is precisely why Allah warns us by saying, هَذَا بَصَائِرٌ لِلنَّاسِ وَهُدًا وَرَحْمَةً لِقَوْمٍ يُقِنُونَ This is wisdom 
This is wisdom to human beings. If you reflect on it, you will learn a great deal. Al-Zalimun Awliya'u'l-Zalimun Al-Zalimin Al-Zalimun Awliya'u'l-Zalimin The unjust are the allies of the unjust. If you support injustice, you are unjust. If you aid the unjust, you are unjust. A long established principle that anyone who has studied human rights knows about the doctrine of superior commands. When after World War II, the United States and the Allies established the Nuremberg Trials and brought German officers who had killed thousands of human beings, millions of human beings, who have perpetuated the Holocaust, the persistent defense in the Nuremberg Trials was a predictable one. I myself was not unjust. I myself was not unjust. All I did was carry out orders. All I did was write an article defending Hitler's legitimacy, but I didn't take part in the massacres. And the principle enshrined in the Nuremberg trials is that you should have known better. You should have known better because by legitimating an infrastructure of injustice, you yourself have become unjust. This is enshrined in the four Geneva Conventions if you are given an unlawful command, the carrying out of an unlawful command will not protect you from responsibility. If you could have reasonably known, it is an unlawful command that even in secular law, ignorance of the law is no defense. So even we don't even get into reasonability. If there was, if, if you could have, if there was a law that prohibited the act you're doing, ignorance of the law is never a defense. We only get into reasonability when the law itself commanded you to do what's wrong. But even then we say, well, you know, a reasonable human being would have known that torturing human beings is wrong, that killing human beings is wrong, that genocide is wrong, that rape is wrong, and you're 
attempt to excuse your behavior by saying, well, I was just carrying out orders. It didn't avail people in the Nuremberg trials. It is not a defense in international law. It is not a defense under American law. It's not a defense under any civilized legal system. Why? Because the unjust are supported by the unjust. The unjust cannot exist in a vacuum. They exist in a system. What do we do? What do we do, Allah? What do we do, Ya Allah? When even your warning to us, you are telling us that this is basair, this is true perception, true insight, true enlightenment. Even with this warning, we exist in a time where Muslims have become so confused that the apologists for injustice have philosophized to an extent that we find absurdity upon layer of absurdity. Recently, a Muslim <clears throat> imam slash professor unfortunately from Zaytuna wrote what I never dreamt I would live to see. He wrote an actual article defending the Muslim ban. Defending Trump's ban against Muslims. Defending Trump's ban against Muslims. Why does that matter? Because of the number of kids who go to Zaytuna and who will sit in the class of this person or other people like him and attempt to learn their Islam from them. I will comment on, on why else that matters in a second. His article, there's no way to, to it's, it's largely mind-numbing dogma if written as an undergraduate paper in my university, I would flunk it. But I'm going to quote a part of it that has to do with the Muslim ban. Our writer 
is very proud of saying, yes, it's important to speak truth to power. Yes, it's important to speak truth to power. But it is also important, according to our writer, to speak truth to pain. Whatever that means. Truth to pain. And part of speaking truth to pain, according to our author, is becoming very clear about the truth about the Muslim ban. So I quote from him. There are some important points and questions that need answering, referring to the Muslim ban. Have we responded to the so-called Muslim ban as believers should? Question mark. It's not as if the proper way to deal with separation from a loved one has no moral analog in our religion. There are, in fact, many precedents of family separation. How about Ibrahim, Prophet Ibrahim, his wife and son? Question mark. Or Prophet Yaqub, Yusuf, and his brothers? Question mark. Peace be upon them all. The proper response to tribulation is patient endurance, not wailing, excessive outrage, and exclusive appeals to the creation. Another quote. Is immigration and entrance to America a human or civil right? Question mark. Then he answers his own question. No, period. It is not. Again, the aim is not to sound insensitive, but when one is insisting that all Muslims must be anti-Trump due, to the, due, the, due to the ban from a limited number of countries, one is peddling in demagoguery. No country in the world, to my knowledge, allows foreigners to freely pass their borders without being a citizen or acquiring a visa. Why should America be any different? If we are truly concerned about the welfare of those who cannot enter our country, it would be more productive to focus on ways to alleviate any suffering caused to those denied by increasing our support for charities which support refugees. So stay where you are and we'll support you where you are. He continues. Is everyone from the seven countries affected by the ban? Question mark. No. American citizens and green card holders, while allowing for anomalies, are free to return to their home countries and back to the U.S., which means that while family members are barred from entry due to not being citizens, those who are not barred from re-entry are 100% free to go visit their loved ones. This is extremely important. Can we honestly say it is forced exile or permanent separation when one is free to leave and re-enter the country at any time? Other than the extraordinary cases, non-citizens are merely inconvenienced in light of their urgent desire to have one's family members join them in America. All else distorts reality. He continues. Is the ban temporary? Question mark. Yes. Trump will not be president forever. Eventually the ban will be lifted. And as believers, 
Muslims should respond to God's tests as he expects us to by anticipating the rewards he promises for our patience. So this is the argument. What's the problem? What's the problem? Prophet Ibrahim was separated from his wife and children. Prophet Joseph was separated from his family. Is the Muslim ban really against all Muslims? What's the problem? Even the countries on the ban, even the countries on the ban, it doesn't cover U.S. citizens and permanent residents who, after all, are always free to travel, go visit their family outside the U.S. And what's the problem? Let's just be patient. The ban will be eventually lifted. Let me be very clear. If this is Islam, I don't want to be Muslim. If this is the moral level of Muslims, I don't want to be Muslim. If an undergraduate wrote this, I would flunk them. If a law student wrote this, they wouldn't pass a course. Leave alone a professor at Zaytuna. This man is equating, is equating Allah's command for Ibrahim to separate from his wife and child as part of a divine plan for a prophet with Trump's gracious command to split up families. This man defends the, the, the incarceration of children in another part of the article and saying, yes, well, it hurts my feeling. But, you know, what has to happen has to happen, basically. And just we need to be patient. This is the relationship of these people to power that they equate between a Trump and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the level of twisted thinking. It is obvious that this man, who is supposedly an academic, has not read any of the circuit court decisions that struck ban down as unconstitutional. It is also obvious that he did not even read the Supreme Court decision itself upholding the Muslim ban, which was a 5-4 decision. In other words, four justices on the Supreme Court were disgusted and revolted by the Muslim ban. And the justices who voted for the Muslim ban are known for their excessive deference to the executive branch. But it was a very close decision. 
if he would have even bothered to read either the circuit court opinions or the Supreme Court opinion, he would have realized that even the Supreme Court meticulously documents the fact that there was overwhelming evidence, overwhelming evidence that the executive order issued by Trump was motivated by nothing other than Islamic animus. Hostility to Islam. However, the five who voted to uphold the ban said since the ban on its face was neutral, we are not going to look to the legislative history. A technical legal point that has to do with whether you look beyond the literal text to the circumstances that surrounded the text. But in all, all courts, including the Supreme Court, that looked at the surrounding circumstances, knew and understood and even documented in the opinion that the Muslim ban was motivated by an anti-Muslim animus. He says in his article, yes, we all remember when Trump said, well, Muslims don't like us. But, you know, it's a slip of the tongue. The problem with these people is they have decided to cow down to power for whatever reason to such an extent to such an extent that they completely ignore Trump's allies, the Zalimun, who surround the Zalim the Trump, they, they completely ignore Bannon, Michael Flynn, all the Islamophobes that supported and funded Trump's campaign. They even ignore the overwhelming anti-Islamic, Islamophobic rhetoric that Trump used to get elected and that Trump used to pass the Muslim ban. No, Trump didn't have a slip of the tongue and say, the Muslims don't like us. Trump said far more than that. Far more. So much so that it is a shame that we have Muslims today that do business with Trump or, or put their hands in Trump's hand. So much so that Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and Egypt should not have accepted any of Trump's dealings because he is through and through an Islamophobe and he has made it part of his insignia.
come to the other point then. What is the problem? The ban doesn't affect all Muslims. It doesn't cover citizens and permanent residents. It ignores the fact that, in fact, the executive branch tried to do that. But because of judges sitting in the judicial branch have a better intellect than you, author of this article, he was forced to rewrite the executive branch, so the executive order, so that it doesn't cover citizens or permanent residents. But even then, he should take a course in immigration law, and I can give him an earful about all the ways that immigration harasses Muslims of all nationalities coming in and out of the United States. Imagine a person that wants from Iran or from Iraq, well, Iraq was exempted from the ban, but let's even take from Iran or from any of the other Muslim countries covered by the ban. Imagine you tell them that their dreams of getting an education or that they cannot complete their diploma, their student in a university pursuing a doctorate, and you tell them they have to go back home. Why? Because of the Muslim ban. And then you tell them, well, no, it's no big deal. If they turn to their Muslim brother, their Muslim brother say, your suffering means nothing to me because I speak truth to pain. I don't speak truth to power. You marry a woman from Yemen and you want to bring her to live with you. You have to wait years and it's likely that it's not even going to go through, like so many cases. The problem with a person like this is they live in a little dark hole. They're not aware of anything that goes around them in real life. It is unbelievable that you have the gall to tell people, oh, you know, it's not a problem because you're always free to go see your people, take a plane to Yemen, take a plane to Syria, go, go to Syria where you're going to be bombed by Assad's forces if you want to see your family. This is Muslim compassion? If this is what compassion means among Islam, in Islam, I am not a Muslim. What type of ugliness is this? Beyond this, this author tells us, well, you know, it's not just Muslims on that list, so we can't really call it a Muslim ban. If you bothered to read any of the court decisions, you would have known the answer. South Korea is on the, is on the list, but it's a formality. 
because we don't give visas to South Koreans. So it didn't really matter. And the, and the only reason that South Korea and Venezuela were added to the list was an order to protect the Muslim ban from being declared unconstitutional. But adding South Korea didn't matter because we don't give visas to anyone from South Korea. And adding Venezuela didn't matter because we have not activated or given any visas to Venezuelans, for Venezuelans except for one category and those who are politically allied to us under a special presidential provision. So these were two technicalities that were entirely cosmetic. The worst argument logically is, well, is the ban permanent? And eventually it will be lifted. Well, not thanks to you. With this thinking, what Muslims should do is just be patient. You are relying on civil rights workers and constitutional activists with this type of thinking, when people like you say the Muslim ban is not a Muslim ban and it is not a problematic, why would anyone have an incentive to remove it? If the victim legitimates the crime of the criminal, if the victim doesn't cry out for his own or her own rights, then why change it? And why not expand it? It is mind-numbing, people. Mind-numbing. Allah tells us the unjust are the allies of the unjust. And then you turn around and find a teacher in a major academic Muslim institution. Not a major academic institution, Muslim institution. Someone who's entrusted to teach Muslim children produce this level of thinking. Telling them, is immigration a civil rights or human rights issue? And then emphatically answering it, no. Get an education, man. Get an education. Do you really have degrees? Have you really studied? Haven't you heard about the UN High Commissioner's Office for Refugees? And his report about the American Muslim ban? Haven't you heard about the Convention for the Rights of Refugees? And the numerous ways that the American Muslim ban violates that international convention? Haven't you heard about our own civil rights laws that decades ago considered family reunification to be a civil right? So apparently you're not informed about international law, you're not informed about human rights law, you're not informed about civil rights law, you're not informed about constitutional law, and yet you are a professor in a Muslim university that teaches Muslims.
Why is this our level? I am a law professor and I deal with real analytical thinking every single day in my life. This is the level of Muslim thinking. This is the level of Muslim so-called scholars. Is it a civil right? Is it a human right? No. Yes, every country has the right to regulate, regulate its immigration. But no country has the right to discriminate on the basis of religion, race, or ethnicity, or gender, or sexual preference, for your information. Because that same guy was part of a lawsuit that tried to take the rights to, to deny gays and lesbians their civil rights. This is what America stands for. This is what international human rights stand for. Yes, you have the right to regulate your immigration, but you don't have the right to do it on the basis of religion, race, or ethnicity. And the Muslim ban is discrimination on the basis of religion. That is the problem. I read an article like this, and I realize that we have an enormous problem as Muslims, and our problem is education. Simple, straightforward education. An academic of this caliber wouldn't find a job in any respectable U.S. academic institution. That level of thinking would not pass peer review. So where does he find a job in Zaytuna? With this level of thinking that is sub, 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 standard. If I am a grown man who spends a good part of his day in sujood, I turn to Allah and say, Ya Allah, if this is your religion, then I don't want to be follow it. How about young people? How about young people? Now I understand, by the way. These past few weeks, these past few weeks, Muslim, Israeli settlers have repeatedly violated the sanctity of the Aqsa Mosque. Israeli settlers protected by Israeli police have repeatedly violated the sanctity of the Aqsa Mosque. Including again at the, at the occasion of Yom Kippur. What's the Muslim response? Absolute and complete silence. Saudi Arabia is sending a soccer team to play in Jerusalem. Did they say we're not even going to play a soccer match because you violated the sanctity of Aqsa Mosque? No. This past week, Israel 
razed to the ground new homes of Palestinians, confiscated new farmlands, decreased the amount of water that Palestinians can use to irrigate their lands. Complete silence by Egypt. Complete silence by Saudi. Complete silence by the Emirat. Recently, India is finishing its concentration camps for Kashmiris. The entire human rights world is freaking out. What's the response by Muslim countries? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You want to kill Kashmiris? Go ahead. Like you killed the Rohingyas. Fine. You want to kill Muslims in China? Fine. You want to violate the sanctity of the Aqsa Mosque? Fine. You want to destroy Palestinian lands and even kill Palestinians? Fine. Now, so this article comes and says, why is it these crazy, dogmatic, fanatic Muslims make Palestine and the United Arab Emirates a litmus test for political correctness. Now I understand. Now I understand why Israel doesn't see any problem with violating the sanctity of the Maqsa Mosque because of Muslims like you. Because of Muslims who are Dalimun, who aid the Dalimun by philosophizing Zulm. The crime of philosophizing Zulm, philosophizing injustice, is worse than any other crime because it's a crime against history and generations. Why is the United Arab Emirates the country that fills the pockets of so many Muslim academics. And I'm not saying that he's one of them, because I don't know. But I know that the United Arab Emirates pays a lot of American Muslim academics. Gives them plenty of money. Why the United Arab Emirates? I'll tell you why the United Arab Emirates. If we even ignore Yemen, we even ignore Libya, if we even ignore the human rights record within the United Arab Emirates. In the next decade, in the next decade, millions of Egyptians are going to perish. Do you know why they're going to perish? Because of Zulm. And because we haven't learned that if you support Zulm, you are part of the Zulm. Why? Because Ethiopia has, is finishing its Nahda Dam. And when it finishes its Nahda Dam, it's going to take away 40% of Egyptian rights in the Nile. And when they do, millions of Egyptian farmlands will die. Now here's the thing. Who helped Ethiopia fund the dam? With Sisi, who I am sure is, it, it, there's something behind this man, because he's done everything to destroy a country like Egypt. 
other than Sisi? Who funded the Ethiopian dam that's going to cause the death and the starvation of millions of Egyptians? The United Arab Emirates. The United Arab Emirates. Who funds a lot of the Islamophobic organizations in Europe and America? The United Arab Emirates. And yet, you come and you tell me, why is the United Arab Emirates a litmus test? Why is Palestine a litmus test? If you don't understand what Jerusalem is for Islam, then there's nothing I can say to you. You're a different type of Muslim altogether. And a Muslim, that it does not honor me, and it does not please me to even know. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان ربي العظيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى آله وصحبه يا رب إن الظالمين بعضهم أولياء بعض the unjust their allies are unjust the allies of the unjust are the unjust. A man curses your religion, brings people like Bannon, who has made an entire career of degrading and insulting your religion. Bring someone like Michael Flynn, who says Islam is evil works with the most famous Islamophobes and himself utters the worst Islamophobic statements there is. And you as a Muslim, as a teacher, come and say, I don't have a problem with you. What do I teach my child, my son? My son, if some people come and say, we hate you, you are disgusting, you are filthy, you are a criminal, we can't stand your sight, you stink, you smell bad. Do I teach my son to stand up for his dignity? Or do I teach my son to smile at them and say, oh, we're friends. Do you have dignity? Do you teach your children about dignity? If a Muslim doesn't have dignity, then I don't know what is a Muslim. We are living truly in a time of fitting. If Islam doesn't lead to justice. And if justice doesn't lead to Islam, then who wants to be Muslim? I will even say, I respect a just non-Muslim far more than an unjust Muslim. 
I have far more respect, far more respect for a non-Muslim who knows what rights are, what human rights are, what civil rights are, what racism is, what bigotry is, far more respect than I have for a Muslim who has no sense of dignity, no sense of honor, no sense of racism, no sense of human rights, no sense of civil rights. You want to raise a generation of broken human beings who are only good at one thing, and that is being submissive to power. And you tell me, oh, say yes, it's important to speak truth to power, but it's also important to speak truth to pain. What does that mean? What does that mean? To go to the, all the refugees that are suffering beyond endurance and tell them, oh, well, the Muslim thing is for us to leave you there and send donations. That's, that's speaking truth to pain? What does that mean? To go to the victim and say it is your fault that you're a victim? To go to the victim and say, be patient because Allah will lift the suffering eventually. That's your truth to pain? You know, in the life of every scholar, there comes a moment where they have to stand by what defines their legacy. The legacy that I have always tried to stand for is a morally upright and ethical Islam. An Islam that knows the difference between a victim and an aggressor. An Islam that knows the difference between a zalim and the adil. An Islam that is confused, that speaks truth to pain, means truth to those who are victimized by telling them, be patient, maybe you deserve it, maybe it's not as bad as you think it is. Is it evil Islam? Is an evil Islam? An ethical religion of, of any name, an ethical Judaism, an ethical Christianity is superior to that evil Islam. A Christianity that teaches human beings justice and human rights is superior to an Islam that teaches pacifism before injustice and suffering. You want to believe me? Believe me. I will meet Allah and Allah will hold me responsible for every word I say. But this is the Islam that I stand for. Those of you that want to follow me, follow me. And those of you who don't, 
you can go to Zaytuna. You'll find them very welcoming. People pray for Sheikh Salman al Oda. Saudi Arabia has completed his trial. He was supposed to be sentenced on Thursday. They postponed his sentencing till October 30th, Wednesday. These types of Muslims that speak truth to pain Muslims will not mention Salman al-Oda because they never mention anyone that suffers injustice. They will not say to Saudi Arabia, shame on you for imprisoning someone for his beliefs and writings. And they will not respond at all whatever harm befalls a great scholar like Salman al-Oda. But I am telling you, pray for the man. Because if this man is put to death, his blood will haunt us for eternity. And every minute that passes with this man and others who are in prison suffering, it is a dishonor upon us all. My Islam will, my Islam says that Allah in the final day will come and say, a great scholar like Salman al-Oda was in Saudi prison. What did you do about it? You want to follow it? Follow it. You prefer an Islam that says, don't worry, someone in prison, just always worry about kissing up to the ruler and kissing his butt then fine, then follow that religion. But it is not an Islam I recognize. And it's not an Islam that I have any need for. وعافنا يا رب العالمين اللهم أرنا الحق حقا وارزقنا اتباعه وأرنا الباطل باطلا وارزقنا اجتنابا يا رب Allah forgive our sins and help guide us يا الله guide us to the truth Allah strengthen us in times of fitna and times of hardship يا رب العالمين and forgive our sins